Hey nerds, what's going on? It's Tasha McNerney, and I am here with another episode of Veterinarian Season Nerds, the podcast. We are coming at you live from the VMX conference in sunny Orlando while it's freezing cold at home. And my guest today on the show is just an awesome all-around technician, has so many letters after her name. Uh, it is a bit ridiculous how much of an overachiever she is. Um, she is a VTS in anesthesia, also a VTS in surgery, also fear-free certified. She does a lot of lecturing around uh, the United States and Canada, all over really, to help educate about anesthesia and pain management practices. And please welcome to the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, Heidi Royce Lamke. Thank you, Tasha. I really appreciate the honor of joining you this afternoon. It actually is a little chilly outside today. It but is for it's Orlando. Still warmer than Michigan, so yes. Shout out to Michigan. Uh, Heidi is you practice in Michigan, correct? Yep, I'm at Oakland Vet Referral Services in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. It's a suburb of Detroit, so. I'm a home Detroit girl. Excellent. Um, so uh, probably the anesthesia nerds know by now that I am a Spartan as well. Yeah. Um, so go Michigan State. Go I, Michigan State. Uh, yeah, we're both Spartans woo, here. Woo. We have to just get more Spartans on the show uh, eventually. Um, so Heidi, uh, I know you're here at VMX. You're teaching a lot. You are talking to people about anesthesia. You're talking about surgery, etc. Um, you and I had talked previously, and kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit and start the podcast with was the importance of checklists. I know you and I both are a fan of the book, The Checklist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. We both uh, see the importance of it, mm -hmm. but not all practices have implemented checklists. So I kind of wanted to talk to you. Uh, what are you seeing out there? What have you guys done at your practice that works? How can people start to implement a surgical checklist or an anesthesia checklist? And how does it actually provide better outcomes? Like, what's your take? Excellent question, Tasha. Um, I have been going to the American College of Veterinary Surgeons Summit every year since the early 90s, and I can tell you that for more than five years, checklists have been a hot topic at the American College of Veterinary Surgeons mm -hmm. Summit. Um, the Checklist Manifesto talks about how checklists evolved from the aviation industry and how some planes were so complicating to fly that unless you used a checklist, they would crash. And so checklists have become a pivotal tool in human medicine as well as veterinary medicine. Um, for me personally, we included checklists a couple years ago. One of my surgeons went to a talk and it's really important at my facility because each doctor is assigned two technicians. Those two technicians are not always the same two technicians. Mm -hmm. So today, you know, I may work with one doctor. Tomorrow, I may work with a different doctor. And so when we're admitting cases that were seen by another doctor, the checklist has become a really important tool. Um, our checklists are customized for our facility. So we have on it things like, um, was blood work required? Um, was it reviewed? What leg are we doing? Do we need x-rays? Do we need ultrasounds? Um, do we need any other diagnostic tests before we can proceed with that patient? And was it completed? It also includes what medications the pet is on. And I know since I'm at a referral and specialty facility, we have to find out from these pet owners, you know, do you need more medication and where do you want to get that medication from? Do you want to get it from us? Do you want to get it from your regular 
veterinarian or do you want a written prescription for it? Um, we also put really important things too that we don't want to forget like to call the owner at the time of induction mm -hmm. um, or, or things of that nature. So. And the checklist actually can be implemented in so many different parts of the hospital. For example, um, operating rooms, I am in charge of the sterilization questions for the Academy of Veterinary Surgical Technicians, and there should be a checklist on cleaning your operating rooms. You know, who does that? How are they audited? Um, what needs to be cleaned? How often does it need to be cleaned? What needs to be stopped? And all of those things can be included. And then even um, discharge checklists, right? Mm -hmm. So clients come in and they brought their Costco bed, that's the size of a tiny car, the dog's favorite woobie, <laughs> the leashes, maybe a suitcase full of all of the mm -hmm. dog's belongings. And you know, those clients are so upset when they come to pick the dog up and you know, their woobie, the favorite woobie, is missing. Mm -hmm. That makes me nuts to have to be <laughs> looking through washers and dryers and other animals' cages to track down some of this stuff. So, um, yeah, if you have the checklist, when that pet owner comes to pick the dog up or the cat up, you have everything ready. You have the medication they need, um, you have the whoopee, you have all of those things so you can expedite how quickly these animals are taken care of and you don't have people waiting in the lobby while you're gathering this, that, and the other thing. So, um, yeah, checklists have become a very important tool and I feel like if you've ever made a mistake, whereas if you've ever shaved the wrong leg or had to reanesthetize an animal because you forgot to take a tumor off or clean the ears or fill in the blank, you know, the checklists actually have been shown to decrease medical errors, improve medical outcomes, because 80% of errors can be chalked up to communication errors. Yeah. So that is why checklists are mm -hmm. really super important. And one thing I was going to mention, when I talk about checklists, to engage everyone in the practice, like I can't come in to my practice say, okay, everybody, we're gonna do checklists and we're forcing everybody to do it because you're not gonna have good compliance. Right. And so in order to implement a checklist, if it's something you're thinking about doing, you know, have a group team meeting and let everybody provide input on what do we want on this checklist. So mm -hmm. customize it for your facility. And if you're not ready to implement checklists, how about a huddle? How about all team members come in in the morning and look at the day in. and say, okay, you know, receptionists, technicians, VAs, surgeons, doctors, mm -hmm. everyone say, you know, we have Mrs. Smith coming in, you know, her cat is very frightened, so let's put her right in the exam room, mm -hmm. um, let's do her first, you know, if the owner wants to wait, um, let's get that pet out of here as quickly as possible. Maybe so everybody right. knows what's so expected. So everybody's on the same page. Yeah, yeah. So, so important. In lieu of a checklist, huddles are a great precursor to formal checklists mm -hmm. um, and can improve teamwork and improve communication within the whole mm -hmm. team. So we know that checklists are going to be important for patient care, but mm -hmm. even not related to the patient, if you didn't want to have a patient checklist, Certainly, an equipment checklist is so important yes. when it comes to anesthesia equipment mm -hmm. and checking your equipment. 
Um, Anesthesia checklist, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you got your machine checklist, you know, you want to make sure you have everything, your endotracheal tubes, the cuff's been checked, your pop-offs, you know, not shut, your um, agent and your vaporizer, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, we could sit here all afternoon yeah. and talk about the I mean, there are definitely times that I've rolled a patient in, try to get him hooked up, only to realize there's no rebreathing bag hooked what? up, right? So okay. I know, again, if we were implementing a checklist, equipment mm -hmm. checklist every time mm -hmm. we wouldn't have that problem and things would run smoother I think the idea is sometimes people get intimidated by a checklist because they think that going down this checklist is going to add so much more time to their day but it really is once you get used to it it mm -hmm. becomes much more streamlined and you become right. much more efficient and again much more safe exactly I know you know my facility it's a a privately owned specialty hospital so we're not university level but mm -hmm. I do know in a university level where maybe there's like five or six people in the room the checklist can include what is the role of everyone in that room and it is not supposed to take a lot of time you're absolutely right you know someone could just say I know I'm the anesthetist I'm the surgeon you know, I'm an observer, you know, fill in the blank. And um, yeah, very important communication tool just to identify basic roles. Excellent. So I know you're here at VMX and you're doing a lot of teaching, lecturing, you're talking about uh, different things and something that's really close to my heart and kind of my passion, pain management and specifically local blocks. Yes. Um, so let's talk for a second about local blocks and the ones that you're teaching. And Give me a couple. What local blocks do you think are being underutilized in practice? And, you know, we're not talking about, we're just talking like a general practice. If I work in a general practice, what right. are some local blocks that I should know that I can utilize on my patients? Great question. Um, so we taught a dental block lab yesterday, and I would say more than 50% of the attendees were veterinarians. And I told those veterinarians point blank, teach this to your technician, you know, for all surgery, and they should not be doing these blocks. It provides a great deal of job satisfaction and improves patient care. You won't be having to turn up your vaporizer when animals are waking up because they're not going to be feeling pain. And I do, when I lecture, I do talk <laughs> about how, well, if you've heard Tasha, you know that she has a dextomator tattoo and she got to go to Finland. And if I had the balls to get a tattoo, it would be a local anesthetic. Oh, don't worry. Like, uh, I will add a local anesthetic to the sleeve will at you? some point. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have like five more in the works, much to my husband's chagrin. I will be all of the anesthesia tattoos at some point. Um, but yeah, local blocks are, they're so important. Again, right. great pain management as a technician skill. Mm -hmm. It's something that there are a lot of conferences like VMX, mm -hmm. um, like the Anesthesia Nerd Symposium that offer advanced training. So if you don't know how to do a dentistry local block yet, go out and go to a wet lab, get the training in it, right? Um, and then teach the other techs at your practice. Right, because it's all about getting comfortable with anatomy and identifying landmarks and truly that that is the most difficult part. Um, I tell people, you know, I'm a big old pansy myself, which is why I'm so passionate about pain medication and analgesia because I even get Emla cream from my tetanus shot and my doctor humors <laughs> me and lets me do it. Um, but yeah, I tell people that if you grab a bottle of local anesthetic and you listen very carefully, 
like there are angels singing because think <laughs> about this right there is not a shot I can give there's not a pill I can give there is nothing that you can give that can block 100% of pain perception like a local anesthetic yes, so I think it's magical yeah and for us at our practice we've kind of challenged ourselves now that we try to give every single patient that's having surgery or dentistry some type of local block, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a neuter, it's getting a testicular block. If it is an amputation, it's maybe getting a brachial plexus block. Mm -hmm. We are doing ring blocks. We're yes. doing incisional line blocks, mm -hmm. utilizing noceta. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, local blocks all the way. So I'm, Epidurals, I'm, I actually have an article that was in the Veterinary Practice News more than 10 years ago that says local practices, more practices are incorporating epidurals and these are not specialty facilities right. these are mom and pop local small animal practices that are doing epidurals and you can certainly do like a lidocaine or repivocaine epidural that won't last 24 hours mm -hmm. and necessitate keeping these animals overnight right but these are excellent forms of pain control and things that are easy to learn if you go to the right environment and get the training that you need. Yeah, and you're exactly right. You don't have to be in a specialty and emergency practice to utilize multimodal techniques. Mm -hmm. These techniques can be used in general practice. They are cost effective. Mm -hmm. They provide great patient care. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, local blocks all the way, you guys. If you haven't got trained yet in local blocks, look for uh, an opportunity to get trained in them and utilize them as much as possible for your patients. So before we go, Heidi, I do want to do the uh, Mentor Monday with you because it's something we like to do here on Anesthesia Nerds to give a shout out to somebody who has been instrumental in your career and kind of pushing you forward and somebody who you might look up to. Who is your mentor? Who do you want to give a shout out to today? So my shout out person of the day um, is Ann Wardinger. Um, some of you may not know that Ann Wardinger and I, we used to work together at Michigan Veterinary Specialist. And Michigan Veterinary Specialist was bought out and turned into a blue pearl, but Michigan Veterinary Specialist trained a lot of the top veterinary technicians. And Ann, you know, she's always the overachiever, not only in, you know, publications and speaking, but, you know, she has raised two children and remodeled her house and <laughs> built a garage and built chicken coops and gardens and it's so hard to keep up with a woman so um, she inspires me to do more and be more I think one time we were at Michigan Veterinary Specialist and she came and saying yeah I made an extra ten thousand dollars doing this speaking gig and I'm like what how can I get on that gravy train so <laughs> she actually um, shared some leads with me and I was an awful speaker when I first started. It was <laughs> real bad because um, some people just have a natural ability and when speaker of the year their first time out and I worked my butt off to get halfway decent but I am doing better now mostly because I throw candy at people <laughs> and incorporate more humor. Um, but yeah, Ann, Ann Wardinger always um, inspired me to be more and do more and I'm always chasing after her. So I would say um, my CV may not be as long as hers, but I'm catching up and getting close. Awesome. Sweet. Great. I think that went pretty well. Yeah. Thank you so much to Heidi for sitting down and chatting with me while she was at VMX. If you guys ever get the chance to hear Heidi speak, 
and lecture on anything surgical or anesthesia related, I definitely recommend uh, taking the chance to see her. She is a wealth of information. I also want to give a shout out to Suburban Living. If you guys are interested in the music that is played on this podcast for our intro and outro, check them out. They are a local Philadelphia band called Suburban Living. They are on Spotify. So make sure you give them a listen. They're pretty fantastic. And I want to give a special Valentine's Day shout out to my husband and also veterinary technician extraordinaire, cat dad, Robert Cantigallo, who without him, we would not have such a fine, well-mixed, well-edited podcast here. So thank you so much, Rob. I love you. Love you too, Tosh. <laughs> All right. We will hear from you guys next week when we will be interviewing somebody fabulous. I haven't figured out who yet, but I'm sure it's going to be somebody fantastic. All right. Bye, guys.